please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. And as you arrive there in chapter 28, you may notice, well, that's the last chapter of the book of Acts. We are coming uh, to a, a close here. And you may say, well, where are we headed next? And maybe we've talked about this a little bit be- before, but we're going to be spending time uh, over the next year looking at an overview of First and Second Samuel. And uh, so if you want to be reading ahead, you can begin to do that. We're going to spend some, some time looking at some larger sections of Scripture. And so the more you're reading ahead, the, the more helpful that might be as we do the overview of that section of Scripture. And we're also going to be spending uh, some time, I don't have the calendar totally worked out right now, but we're also going to be spending a, a few weeks in Lamentations, looking at a couple passages from Lamentations over the uh, month of December and, and January probably. So you can be reading that ahead of time as well. But this morning, and probably two more weeks after that, we're here in the book of Acts. And so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, Acts chapter 28, beginning here in verse 1. Remember, they've just been shipwrecked. And verse 44 says, all were brought safely to land. And we come to verse 1. After we were brought safely through We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that no misfortune come to him, saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. May God be glorified through his word this morning. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for the ability to gather together this morning to worship you to be with with others who desire to bring praise and glory to your name. And as we're with one another, we pray that we would be encouraged to to care for one another and to care for those who are in our lives, to be faithful to the the tasks you've called us to. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're like me, uh, you do not enjoy detours. I don't enjoy, uh, when I'm traveling, taking unexpected uh, avenues. In fact, uh, oftentimes our family will take car rides, and 
our, our most frequent trip is from uh, central Illinois to the Dallas-Fort Worth area to, to see our family. And there are many kind of attractions alongside the roads you see signs for as you travel from, from here to Dallas-Fort Worth. I, I don't call them attractions. I call them distractions. Uh, things like, uh, I don't know if I'm saying right, Merrimack Cavern or uh, the, uh, the, the Precious Moments Chapel or the world's largest candy store. Maybe you've seen that uh, roadside attraction before. Or the, uh, the, the big elephant with the, sun, with the glasses between here and St. Louis. Uh, all these distractions are things that our family tries to avoid. And when we have to take a little bit of a detour and make a little bit of a stop, we, we try to do that as quickly as possible. And I've been known to time us before as we uh, stop and get the gas. And I don't enjoy detours that are literal, and I also oftentimes don't enjoy detours that are, that are figurative, right? I have this, this goal for where I want to be, and then something happens and I, I find myself here instead. And I don't find that enjoyable. It's not what I want to happen. Think about whenever we were planning on planting Bethany Community Church. It was 2005, and it was announced. It's, okay, here's kind of the, the vision of, of where we're going to go and how we're going to do this. And then detour after detour kind of delayed us. And so we found ourselves here instead of here, very impatient with that. Didn't enjoy the detour. And maybe uh, you're along some of this, these, these roads this morning as well. You, you've had detours. You had this, this plan. This was where you're going to be. And instead this morning, you find yourself here along this path. Maybe you had this, this dream of a, a cross-country season and you, you were in good health. You said, okay, this cross-country season, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear it up. I'm going to set some records and some, some PRs. And, and this, is, this is the journey I think I'm on. And instead, wham, season injury, right? Or maybe, maybe there's a financial detour. You're on this career path and you think, okay, this is my career path and I'm going to be here in five years and all of a sudden... You're laid off. Or there's some sort of hit to your, your, your portfolio and this retirement plan that you had. So suddenly you find yourself on, on this path instead. I was talking with a, a, a dear brother in the church, and he's had a, a health detour recently. Thought he was headed this way this morning. Our brother finds himself on this path. What, what do we do in that moment? We find ourselves here on, on this detour instead of here. If you're like me, you can struggle with impatience. You can struggle with a feeling of frustration. As you find yourself on this path, you can say, okay, I need to do everything I can to get off this path as quickly as I can to get back to where I think that I need to be. This morning, Paul finds himself on a detour. He finds himself someplace he didn't plan on being. He's shipwrecked. But what do we see Paul doing? We don't see him sulking. We don't see him railing against the injustice of it all. We see him faithfully doing what God has called him to do, where he's called him to do it. In fact, here's the, the main idea that I want us to think about together this morning. This, this main idea is we, we think about these disruptive detours in God's providential pathways. The disruptive detours in our lives are God's providential pathways we walk with obedience and joy. 
So these disruptive detours that, that happen in our life, we, we think we're walking this way and suddenly we find ourselves over here. It's this disruptive detour. It changes everything in our life. This is, this is by God's grace, it's a providential pathway that we are called to walk with obedience and with joy. In fact, let me read, as we think about that word providence, let me, let me read to you from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was written in 1689, so over 300 years ago. Listen to what they they write here about providence. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the, the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's a, an incredibly re, rich, rich statement. What, what is he saying? What are they saying there? They're saying, God. God, first of all, in terms of his character, he is completely powerful. He can do all things. He's completely good. There's no evil in God. He, he knows all things. And in that, in that complete knowledge and wisdom and goodness that he has, what does he do? He acts. He, he, he does things. He controls all things, the, the, the greatest to the smallest. He controls all things. And to what end? To, to the end of the, the praise of his glory. In fact, it goes on to say this. This is kind of a familiar phrase, I hope, to you. He says, this means that whatsoever befalls any of his elect, any of his church, is by his appointment. Whatever happens to us is by God's appointment for his glory and their good. It's written in 1689, for his glory and their good. Where we find ourselves this morning, where you find, maybe in fact, you weren't even supposed to be here this morning. If, if you had had your way, you'd be on a completely different path in your life right now. Maybe this, this past week there's been a, a, a detour, or maybe over the last five years there's been a significant detour. And if, if your five-year plan had happened, you would be in a much different place than you are this morning. But here you sit, here you are, and you're in a place you did not expect to be with your, with your family, with your career, with relationships, with this church, whatever it is, here's where you are. And what I'm telling you this morning is, if, if you're God's people, if you're God's child, this is not where you are by accident. This is part of God's providential path for you, a path that you and I walk with obedience and joy, trusting that it's for God's glory, for our good. So what I want to do this morning and so I want to look at these, these places that God takes Paul in his providential path for Paul. And, and what we see is, is as God takes us along this providential pathway, these aren't always the things that he does every time, but, but these are some things at times he will do with you and I as well. And I want us to see where these pathways lead. Three things we see about where God's providential pathways bring us this morning. So here's the first thing. Number one. Providential pathways bring us, at times, to kind people. Providential pathways bring us to kind people. Look, look at your text with me. There's been a shipwreck, right? And everybody comes safely to land. And when they first arrive there, nobody knows where they are. 
This is, a, this is a disruptive detour if ever there was one. I mean, imagine you're one of the people who was on this, this ship. It's been a really rough last couple of weeks. Now you find yourself on this island. You've lost everything you weren't able to, to carry with you, which was probably almost nothing. Uh, there's a loss of time. There's, there's a loss of energy. You are incredibly frightened about not knowing what the next steps of your life are. This is a disruptive detour. Imagine you're, you're one of the, the people who was the, like the, the ship owner. There's been an incredible disruption in your life when it comes to your financial security. The, the, the grain that you had that you were going to sell when you arrived at port now is in the sea. If you're a sailor, you're, you're probably hoping for, for some of the profits from the, the expedition to, to pay your salary. This is a, an incredible disruption for you. For Paul, this is a disruption. This is not where he had planned to spend the winter. He had, he had advised staying in Crete. In Crete is a nicer place than Malta where they arrived. They don't know where they are at first. But who does know where they are? Who does know where they are in this disruptive detour? It's, it's God. Look, look at the text. It says, we were brought safely through. Remember I told you last week the word or words related to salvation occur over and over again in, in the story. This is a word that, that has the same word of salvation within it. And, and what it's talking about here is it doesn't say, and after we had saved ourselves, it says, no, after we were saved, after, after we were brought safely through, after God delivered us, remember this is God's doing, we then discovered where he had taken us. And where is it? It's this island called Malta. Malta is an island it's like 58 miles south of Sicily and 100, uh, 180 miles northeast of Africa. Today, it's, it's the 10th smallest country in the world in terms of area, but the fourth largest country in terms of the denseness of, of population, the, the fourth most densely populated country. It's about 18 miles wide and about eight. Uh, 18 miles long and then about eight miles wide. So if, if this room were like the center of the island, you could, you could travel west and hit the river. And if you were going to travel east, you could hit the intersection in, in Eureka of 24 and 117 or whatever that is. Or if you're going to travel north, you could go on the blacktop and almost make it to Metamora, but not quite. Or you could travel south and end up in the parking lot of Grace Bible Church and say hello to our friends there this morning. But it's not a very large island, right? That's Malta. And God places them there. And look at verse 2. It says, the native people showed us unusual kindness. So they encounter some kind people there. The, the native people, that's a phrase used to translate the Greek word barbaros. Barbaros, you kind of hear what, what English word is in that? Barbarian, bar, barbaros. It, it was a word that didn't mean the same thing in Greek that it means, in, when we say barbarian, we kind of think of a person who's a barbarian. <laughs> but uh, I have a head cold this morning, obviously, so illustrations will be a little minimal, right, on the fly. But, but what the word means here, it means a person who doesn't speak Greek or Latin. It's, it's a person who's not part of the Greco-Roman culture. And so a barbarian, they got that word because when they couldn't, a Greek-speaking person could understand what the other person was saying, to them it just sounded like bar, 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 barbarian, right? Or uh, like blah, 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 you know, it's kind of the same sort of thing. These were descendants of Phoenicians, 
And uh, so it had probably been settled around 1,000 B.C., and, and, and they had given it the name Malta, which means refuge. But what I really want you to notice about these people are two things. First of all, notice the phrase, showed us unusual kindness. That word kindness is the Greek word philanthropia. And you hear that English word in there too, right? Philanthropy, that ph- philanthropia, that means to, to, to show affectionate concern for another person. That's what that word means. And so they, they, they see the need, and it says, the, the, the sentence there says, they, they showed us not the customary kindness. That's what it literally means. In other, in other words, there's the, the, the normal kindness that a person might do, and, and these people went above and beyond that. They're, they're considerate of them. They, they have a desire to meet their needs. And then also it says they, they welcomed us. They, they take them into themselves. And, and how do they do that? Well, there's 276 souls that were on the ship. They all survive, and the, the people in this tiny island are now doing everything they can to provide for these cold, wet strangers. They're starting fires and providing for their needs. Hospitality was very important in the ancient world. Remember the story, uh, the Odyssey, about Odysseus's journey from, from Troy back to Greece? As you encounter people in that story, you, you can tell a good person from a bad person by whether or not they practice hospitality. So, for example, uh, Odysseus is shipwrecked on an island, and the king and queen show him hospitality. You see, they're, they're good people. Uh, he is on another island, and he encounters the Cyclops. Instead of feeding him, the Cyclops tries to eat him. Uh, that's not hospitality. When your host tries to eat you, that's considered rude in ancient cultures, right? Odysseus' son, Telemachus, shows hospitality and is shown to be a good person. He, he sees this stranger and he says, greetings strangers, here in our house you'll find a royal welcome. Have supper first, then tell us what you need. In other words, let me meet your needs first and then tell me who you are. It doesn't even matter who you are. I'm going to show kindness to you because you're a stranger. That's hospitality. Now, as Paul and the others land on this island, what do they encounter? They encounter kind people. Does it mean that they're saved people? No. But by God's, if you were at the men's breakfast yesterday, Justin talked about common grace. By by God's common grace, these are people who understand hospitality. And oftentimes we encounter unbelievers who are very, very kind and very, very hospitable. Here's here's the application as we think about these, these first couple of verses. Here's what I'd encourage you to think about. As you, as you find yourself on this providential pathway, don't miss the souls for the shipwreck, okay? Don't miss the souls for the shipwreck. What do I mean? If you look at this, this place that you are and you say, okay, this is a disruptive detour, what are you going to do? If you say, this, this place that I'm at right now, this is a disruptive user. I'm supposed to be here. Instead, I'm here. Here I am, and, and, and this is what you're going to say. Okay, okay I, I have this disruptive detour, this, this health concern. I'm at a hospital, and this is a terrible place to be. I, I have this, this disruptive detour, and my, my, I'm supposed to be here. Instead, I'm in my basement as it is flooding with water. You're going to look around. We're going to see water. It's a it's a disruption. It's, it's, it's not something that's supposed to happen. Now, I think it's 
fine to, to say this isn't necessarily what I, what I want to happen, but if we see these, these detours as just dis- disruptions, what's going to happen? It's gonna, we're going to be impatient. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to grumble about what a, a waste of time this is. And I do, I'm glad that someone has not had a recorder around me every time I've used the phrase, what a waste of time, because it would be a very, very long recording, right? Because that's what we say when we find ourselves on a pathway we don't believe we're supposed to be on. What a waste of time. I'm supposed to be doing this. Now again, it's okay to say, this isn't what I would choose to do. It's okay to be upset or disappointed by things, but I'm saying if if you just look at a crisis through the lens of a heart that believes you're supposed to be here and instead you're here, all you're going to see is a shipwreck. Instead, if you think of this path as part of God's providential pathway, what are you going to say? You're going to focus on the soul's right? Here I am at a hospital surrounded by people. I'm I'm, I'm interacting with with technicians and and nurses and doctors and and visitors and other patients. I'm around a lot of people on this pathway. Or here here I am in my basement as it's flooding with water, and and, and here are my neighbors helping me. My my friends have come here, and and, and here's this nice new plumber I'm meeting, you know? There's there's all these, these other things that are taking place. They're, we're surrounded by souls. Beloved, I want you to ask yourself two questions this morning. The first question is this. What's your detour? What, what's the detour that you're on this morning? As you look and you say, but this, this is not where I planned to be or this is not where I wanted to be. Maybe something comes very quickly to mind. Maybe something comes very slowly. What's the thing you've said? This is a waste of time. This is what I shouldn't be doing. This is what I want to be. What is that for you? And maybe you don't have anything that immediately comes to mind. And then the second question to ask yourself is this. Who are the people who are around me right now who would not be around me if I was not in this place? Who are the people that God has brought into my life through this circumstance? And, and as we ask ourselves that question, we might have a part of the answer to the question, why has God chosen to do this? Now, Again, sometimes on God's providential pathways, there won't be an additional people around you. Sometimes it might be something you're, you're suffering in, in isolation. Sometimes it might not be kind people God is bringing around you. It might be very mean people. But they're still people. Here in Paul's circumstances, God takes him on this sovereignly determined pathway. He brings new souls into his life. Look around. Who are the people that if God had interfered in the way that he has, you would not have relationship with? Here's the second thing I want us to notice in this text. Number two, we see that these providential pathways bring us to spiritually lost people. Verse three, Paul gathers, is gathering bundles of sticks. He's put them in the fire and Remember the last couple of weeks we've been talking about lessons in leadership, and if we were continuing to do that, we'd notice another example of Paul's humility. He's engaged, and even though he's gained a lot of influence through his time on the boat, he is gathered in and doing the work along with everybody else. And as he's doing that, a, a snake is kind of attracted to the warmth of the fire, and, and he begins to, to make his way there, and Paul's picking up these sticks, and it says, a viper came out of the heat, because of the heat, and fastened on his hand. 
And then verse 4 tells us that, that uh, the, the people notice this. Now, Paul's life is in danger once again. They, they recognize this as a poisonous snake. And uh, Paul has been in danger from the shipwreck, from sailors, or the soldiers threatening to kill him, now from the snake. And here's what the people say. And as, as, you, as you read these words, notice the worldview that these people on the island of Malta have. It, it tells us about their, their spiritual understanding. They say, they, they look, they see that the creature, it's dangling from his hand, and they look at one another and they say, no doubt. Uh, the word there means, of, of course, like we, we know exactly what this means. We, we can look at this situation, and as we look at what's happening to this man, we, we understand spiritually what this means. What does it mean? No doubt, of course, this man is a murderer. He has escaped from the sea, but justice has not allowed him to live. And so the islanders look at what's happened. Okay, we can understand a a person encountering a shipwreck. Those sorts of things happen. But a guy that has a shipwreck gets rescued and then a snake bites him, that guy's not just having a bad day. Someone's out to get him. And they conclude it's justice. It's this, that's the the word for the the Roman god of justice, or or perhaps it's the the Phoenician understanding of that, that same sort of concept. But whatever it is, they've reached a conclusion. This guy is a murderer, therefore justice has not allowed him to live. This tells us about their legalistic worldview, right? Their God and their conception of God is is not of a God of grace. Their conclusion reaches or is founded on some right ideas about divine justice. In other words, they're they're right that there's a penalty to be paid, but they're very wrong in their conceptions about, about God and his response to wickedness and to evil. I mean, I thought about this this morning. By the way, they're right. I mean, Paul is a murderer, right? But they're wrong about the character of God. They don't understand that the only way that a person can be saved is not by their works, but by God's mercy. In other words, as they see this happening, they say, okay, there's a God who, who takes care of evil, and when a, a person has something bad happen to them, that's their fault, and, and God is going to punish them for their wickedness. Now, what does that also mean? That also means that if a person doesn't have something bad happen to them, that must mean they've done what's right. And so a person is punished because of their wickedness, but also delivered by their own righteousness. Their conception about God reveals that they are lost. So what I want you to see here is, yes, these are nice people, so to speak, but they are still spiritually lost, aren't they? To be good and kind doesn't mean to be saved. In fact, some of the kindest people you know can struggle with the harshest legalism, often self-directed. Like, like Job's friends, they, they fundament, fundamentally misunderstand a key aspect of the character of God. They do not grasp God's mercy, and simultaneously don't grasp the depth of their own sinfulness. And they believe the only way they can be saved is not by their works, but by God's mercy. As we sang this morning, what? Holiness is Christ in me. Not holiness is my own work. To be good and kind doesn't mean to be saved. 
we probably all can think of friends, of, of family members who are, are very, very kind people, very, very generous, and yet are also very, very lost. Their conception of God is of a God who is constantly keeping score, and someday they're going to have to stand before him and give a, a reckoning based upon their own works, and they, they hope that they can show God that their, their, their good outweighs their bad. And that's what they're hoping for as they consider their, their eternal destiny. It's legalism. In fact, let me just take a moment here and, and, and talk just a little bit about legalism, right? Because it's not just unbelievers who struggle with legalism, right? I mean, a legalist, a person who's re- relying upon their own works for salvation or believing that they can, can gain God's approval by their works, that, that person's not a believer. But all believers can, can struggle with legalism. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson writes this, he says there's, there's more to legalism than merely a, a doctrine of justification by works rather than by grace. Otherwise, legalism could be cured relatively easily. And he imagines this, this conversation between a, a person who's struggling with legalism. They go and they talk to their pastor. Pastor, I'm struggling with legalism. And the pastor says, oh, good news, don't. Uh, you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of his works, not yours. And the person goes, oh, great, thank you. And they're cured. That's not how it works, is it? We constantly struggle with this heart attitude. As Ferguson writes, he says, the essence of legalism is a heart distortion of the graciousness of God and of the God of grace. And that's something we are always going to struggle with, distorting the the magnificence of God's grace and misunderstanding his character as a God of grace. The spiritual lostness of the people in Malta is seen in their legalism. Ferguson goes on to, to say, uh, legalism is like the, the many-headed hydra. It's multidimensional and multi-layered. He says, legalism is not only a distortion of the gospel, but in its fundamental character, it's also a distortion of the law. So we have the gospel that proclaims that we're saved by God's grace through faith alone, and we have the law. And, and, and not only does legalism distort the gospel, believing that we can earn our own salvation, but Legalism distorts the goodness of God in giving us the law. The law is given by God's grace as well in love. It shows us our sin. It restrains us from evil and evil in the society. It gives us a map of what it looks like to walk in holiness before God. It's also God's grace. Ferguson writes, In essence, legalism is any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace, including in giving us the law. And so the spiritual lostness of the people on Malta is, is seen in their legalism. There's belief that there's a God who doesn't show grace but rewards us only on the basis of our works done in our own righteousness. They're lost. And then not only is their spiritual lostness seen there in verse 4, but look at verse 5 and 6. It says, uh, Paul, uh, Paul's not all that concerned. There's this kind of shaking off the snake. Uh, Paul's been through a lot, right? He's pretty sure he's getting to Rome. He's confident of that, right? He he knows that God is going to get him there. Snake, not a big deal. Gives it a little bit of a warm-up in the fire. 
When it says, suffer no harm, it's himself, not the snake. And then I think verse 6 is kind of funny, right? Uh, the, the people that, that are there, it says they're, they're waiting for him. They're just kind of, you can just imagine them watching, right? Uh, let's, let's see how this goes. This murderer is about to swell up, or maybe just go fall down dead real quickly. But and they, they wait a long time. They keep on waiting. Now? 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 And then nothing happens. And it says they change their mind. It's, it's a word that you can also translate repent. And, but it's not, a, it's not a godly repentance. It's a repentance from one form of idolatry to another form of idolatry, right? It says, they, well, they must be a god. And we know before in the story of Acts how Paul would respond to that. Here's the point. Here's, here's the point of application here in the second point. Don't overlook the lostness of the nice people around you. Don't overlook the lostness of the nice people around you. If you think about the path you're on as a disruptive detour, you're going to be so focused on your own misfortunes that you're going to be unaware that you are surrounded by very nice people who are on their way to hell. You're going to receive their kindness because, yeah, that's what you need because you're, you're in this disruptive detour, and so you're going to be willing to receive that help, but you're going to look at it through spiritual lenses and say, okay, th- these people around me who are helping me are, are very nice people who are relying upon their own works for salvation. They're on their way to hell apart from God's divine intervention. As I mentioned before, uh, you know, I, I can tend to overplan. Uh, I was talking with someone on, on Saturday, and he was talking about his, his work schedule right now and just the, the incredible things that he has. And, and I'm sure like, like all of us, you know, sometimes you can put something on your calendar and say, okay, I'm going to accomplish these 15 things today, right? And, and, and you start, you, you, you the night before, you say, okay, these 15 things are going to happen tomorrow, and it's 8 a.m., and you're already three things behind. You know, that's a really bad sign, right? That you might be overplanning. If your day doesn't even begin, and you're already behind, right? And, and then it's, it's 325. And at 325, you were supposed to send an email. But at 324, this person walks into your office, and they, they say, hey, can we talk for a minute? And as they talk, 325 comes and goes. And now it's 327. At 327, you're supposed to make this phone call, and now that phone call doesn't happen. And, and, and you're, you're thinking about your day tomorrow, and as they continue to talk, you recognize, okay, my day tomorrow was already packed. These things I didn't just now do, there's, I, I, there's no place to put them. And this person that walked into your office is like this hand grenade that just kind of came in and blew everything up. If you view your life, if you view the place that you're on as a disruptive detour, you're going to see the the, the people around you as, as disruptions. You're so focused on your own misfortunes, you'll be unaware that the people around you are lost. But, but what if we saw this differently? Instead of seeing that, that person that, that comes in and disrupts our schedule as this, this hand grenade, what if we saw them as a person with an eternal soul that God has, has called us to proclaim the gospel to you see, if, if you think of your path, instead of a disruptive detour, if you think of this, this place that you are as part of God's providential pathway, you're going to be looking at the people around you as your current ministry. Not as people to help you get back to your real ministry, but you're going to look at the people around you as your current ministry. You're going to be asking yourself as you are surrounded by these people, not how are they going to help me get better, 
although that's not always an unfair question to ask, but that's not going to be your only question. Your, your question is going to be, what is their spiritual condition? These people who are around me, who are very kind people to me, what is their spiritual condition? Beloved, look at the people around you who are here in this place that you did not intend to be, this place you did not plan to be, this place you do not want to be, and ask yourself this question, what spiritual needs exist around me? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I know a lot of unbelievers, and most of the unbelievers that I know are not terrible people. But by, I mean, they're terrible people theologically. I mean, in terms of our, our ultimate condition, yes, total depravity, all that's true. But by, by God's common grace, you know, come from, from families that love them and, and things like that, there, there's, there's a lot of very, very kind unbelievers who are around me. I meet them at events for the kids. They're, they're my neighbors, and, and they're very nice. They're very, very moral. But many, many, many moral people around you are lost. There may be family members that are around you that are so moral that their souls are in danger of spending eternity without Christ. And the time that God brings you to spend with them, you look as this, this disruptive detour instead of God's providential pathway that allows you to be around these, these lost family members. There's a character in the, the novel uh, Jane Eyre by uh, uh, Charlotte Bronte. And his name is John Rivers. He's a, he's a pastor. Not a, not a guy who's experienced peace. In fact, the, the main character of the novel, Jane, is, is not convinced that he's ever experienced God's peace. She, she writes about listening to him preach. And, and this is what she she says about his preaching. She says, the heart was thrilled, the mind astonished by the power of the preacher, but neither the heart nor the mind were softened. Throughout his preaching, there was a strange bitterness and an absence of gentleness. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his sermon, I experienced an inexpressible sadness, for it seemed to me that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay dregs of disappointment. I was sure that he, though pure-lived, conscientious, zealous, had not yet found that peace of God which, perpa- which passeth all understanding. He had no more found it than I, she writes. And at the very end of the novel, he's the last character that's, that's uh, spoiler alert, he's the last character that's, that's mentioned in the novel, and, and she writes about him that, that he expected to, to find himself a place in the first rank in heaven of those who are redeemed from the earth, who stand without fault before the throne of God. But it wasn't a standing without fault on the basis of Christ's work. He, he expected, but, but on the, the basis of his sacrificial labors among people in India and among people in his, his, his uh, parish in, in England, he expected to stand before God without fault on the basis of his own work. He, he, it's a pastor, a very good, moral pastor who's very, very lost. It's a question, again, to ask ourselves. In fact, maybe, maybe try it. Try this this week. When God brings someone into your, your life through an interruption this week, which seems like a, a pretty high likelihood it will happen, first pray. As that person interrupts your, your day or as, as a situation interrupts your day and you're brought into a relationship with someone, you say, man, what, God, what do you, what's your purpose here? And then try to engage in meaningful conversation. 
with someone, asking them questions that can help you have a spiritual conversation. Maybe even asking if you can pray for them and how. Providential pathways bring us to spiritually lost people. And then the last thing I want us to see together, by God's grace, providential pathways at times bring us to physically needy people. Verses 7 and 8 introduce us to the person who is in a position of prominence on the island, a man named Publius. He was probably an appointee of the Roman government. And it said that that Publius received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So here, once again, is an unbeliever showing incredible hospitality. Now, whether it's all 127 people or just Luke and Paul and their, their smaller group, maybe the the uh, centurion and some of the ship officials. Uh, but whatever the case, this, this wealthy, important individual on the island shows kindness. Not only does he show kindness, he's a person in need. Verse 8 tells us that it happened that his father lay sick with, with fever and dysentery. This, this is probably what's called Malta fever. There's a, a name for this. It's an infection that was brought on by goat's milk, named after this infection on the island, a, a gastric fever, fever caused by a, a microbe in goat's milk. So be careful if you're in Malta. No, it's not common anymore. But, the whole, I, but, but there he is, and, and what does Paul do? It says that he visits his, his father, Publius's father, prays, lays hands on him, and, he, and he's healed. And, and then his ministry continues. It says the whole island is opened for ministry. It says after the father is healed, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and and were cured. And so you have this picture of this this, this small island hearing about what Paul has done here, and and now everyone's coming, and they want to to talk to him, and they want to experience this this grace of healing. Now, it's interesting. Uh, It doesn't say that he shares the gospel. It doesn't talk about Paul proclaiming the gospel, but I think it's, I think it's implied here in the text for, for a couple of reasons. One, we always see in the, the book of Acts the, the accompanying of, of gospel preaching with good works and, and healing. And, and it's over and over, it's been talked about, that's, that's what accompanies the gospel proclamation in a new place. And I think that's what's happening here. And I don't think Luke needs to, to go into that one more time. But we also see, I think, that in, in verse 10, it says that they honored us greatly, and when we're about to sell, they, they, they put on board whatever we needed. So there's this honor on the basis of not just their, their healing, but their message. I think they're identifying with the gospel that's been proclaimed here. But I think also, the reason Luke doesn't go into this is I think Luke wants to emphasize the, the good deeds that are done among these people. Paul doesn't just, in this situation, say, okay, look, I'm going to hole up here, and, and whenever the, the, the time's done, then I'm going to get out of here. But he spends this time not saying, look, just wake me up when we get to Rome, but engaged in ministry, engaged in doing good things. Here's the application, right? Don't miss your opportunity to do good among people. Don't miss the opportunity to do good. Doing good things is not something we do instead of proclaiming the gospel. It's not like I'm either going to proclaim the gospel or I'm going to do nice things to people. They're done in conjunction. We don't 
tell the good news without doing good things. We don't do good things without proclaiming the good news. Now, if you think of the path that you're on as a disruptive detour, you're going to miss the opportunities that God gives you to do good. You're going to be so focused on your own misfortunes, on the, 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 the need for you to do whatever you can to get back to where you need to be, that you're not going to be aware of the good things that God has placed before you to do. Acts 10.38, Jesus is described as one who went about healing and doing good works. But instead, if you think of the path that you're on now as a providential pathway, you're going to seize those opportunities. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, God who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We do good by God's enabling where he has placed us. That includes gospel proclamation and doing good things for other people. We're constantly asking ourselves the question, how in this situation that I'm in right now, not just how do I, how do I get out of it, but how do I maximize the benefit of me being here to the people who are around me? That's the question that a person who's confident of God's providence asks him or herself when they find themselves in this place. They look around, they say, okay, this is where God has placed me. This is, these are the abilities that he's given me. How can God use me here to, to minister to the physically needy people who are around me as I proclaim the gospel? That's what a believer asks themselves. If you've uh, probably heard me say before, uh, my, my son Noah is my, my nickname kid. He loves to give me different nicknames. Be like, uh, he rarely calls me dad. It's... Uh, Hey, Big D, or Pastor D, or Dr. D, or Daddy-O, or Paterfamilius, you know, which is the most respectful and sarcastic simultaneously. <laughs> Paterfamilius, head of the family, it, it, it always cracks me up. I never know what he's going to call me. But ultimately, I'm not really head of the family, right, in, in the final sense, Thomas Adams, a Puritan, wrote this in the 17th century. He says, God upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. He is pater familius and disposes all things in this universe with greater care and providence than any householder can manage the business of his private family. I love my family. If I could design that the path for my children and, and keep them on that path, it would be, it would be a, a glorious path <laughs> for me. They, they might not enjoy it as much, right? But God's knowledge of me is far greater than, than my knowledge of my children. His love for me is far greater than the love I have for my children. And where we find ourselves right now is not some plan B for God. God has us walking this providential pathway that is his, his preordained plan for us, and it's a plan that is, that is designed by him for what? His glory and our good. His pathway for you this morning is good. Is it hard? Yes. Is it painful at times? Absolutely. Does he experience, does he also have sorrow as, as he considers the, the sin and, and the, the, the terribleness of, of some of the things that have happened to you on that path? Absolutely. But it's a, a good pathway. I mentioned before the impatience I felt in 2005 as, as uh, we were kind of delaying the, the church plant and we were on this, this new detour, this disruptive detour in, in my mind. 
But as, as interesting as I think about that, in between 2005 and 2008 when we uh, planted the church, the, the orphan care ministry really developed. You know, God brought people into to Bethany Baptist Church who were thinking about adoption and foster care. And, and I think about the, the way that, that I and, and others just got involved in that ministry and the things God did through in those three years. I mean, I, I believe that there are eternal consequences for, for what God has done. I, there are literally dozens of children who are in our homes at, at here and at Bethany Community, at Bethany Baptist Church as a result of, of what God did during those, that, that time of disruption. We wouldn't have our daughter apart from that disruption, right? That's a pretty good path. <laughs> That's pretty disruptive. The disruptive detours in our lives are God's providential pathways we walk with obedience and joy as we find ourselves trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, the things you've called us to do are hard. They're not easy, but we walk them with joy as we find ourselves in, in places you've put us. We, we think this morning of, of, of people, souls, who we would not know apart from these hard paths. Lord, let us use this opportunity to do good, to meet their needs. And as we meet their needs, to proclaim to them the good news of your son Jesus. And Father, we pray that your name would be glorified through eternity as a result of where you've placed us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.